brought to you by Penguin. But I was outraged because I thought I've just won this major prize and this very experienced broadcaster has completely erased me from it in that moment. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the award-winning Penguin podcast with me, Nihal Arthanaika. Over the years, we have interviewed some of the very best authors from all over the world, and by inviting them to bring with them objects that have inspired them in some way, we've managed to delve deeply into what drives them and how they channel those inspirations onto the page. Today, we're going to focus on one elite group of writers. Founded in 1969, the Booker Prize is one of the most high-profile literary awards in the English-speaking world, and just being placed on the long list is a privileged accolade. But going the whole way and winning the crown brings with it not only a £50,000 prize fund, making it one of the world's richest literary prizes, but also international and often life-changing worldwide recognition. And here on the Penguin Podcast, we've had no fewer than eight previous winners walk through our doors and open up to us about their inspirations and their writing habits. So ahead of this year's nominations, let's take a look back at some of the highlights from those interviews. In this selection of clips, we'll hear from some of the finest writers of recent times, discussing the booker itself, how they construct their novels, and the different approaches they take to storytelling. And we'll find out how objects ranging from a squirrel's skull to a photo of Carrie Fisher to a Kashmiri Ferran have shaped the stories we've loved in recent years. Let's start with Bernadine Evaristo, winner for Girl, Woman, Other in 2019. She described her pride in such a disruptive novel winning the award. And she also commented on an infamous moment with a well-respected newsreader. But firstly, she brought with her an old photo of herself. There's a picture of me um, from 1981, I think. Right. And I'm, I'm wearing this old man's secondhand coat and my hair is almost shaved and I've got a really kind of strong, shall we say, look on my face. And that was exactly how I was then. I was at drama school, I was um, 21, and I was very strongly evolving into a feminist, very outspoken, a black feminist, because I was very aware that the sort of feminism had been co-opted by white women and we weren't really included. I don't um, think intersectionality even existed as a word. Did it? I mean, it didn't exist, no, no, it didn't. So that, the, you know, the young feminists today are very different and their approach to feminism is much more inclusive and I really like that. If you think about Woman's Hour, I think it was last year, where they were talking about hair and how often you should wash your hair. And I was listening to it on the radio and then they started talking about black women's hair and that they they can't just talk about hair as some generic thing. Actually, hair is different according to which, you know, racial group you belong to. And I just thought, wow, this is this is progressive and I think this is happening on many levels. Mm. So that's why that photo to me means so much because it's about the countercultural 1980s black feminist artistic movement that I was a part of and we were second generation women we were mostly born in Britain raised in Britain we felt that we belonged to this culture but society didn't include us and we were fighting to be included through the arts 
that photo says a lot, you know, and it's also I, when I look at myself then, I'm very different now, a very different person. But actually, my kind of radical politics haven't changed. In many ways, Girl, Woman, Other is a radical book, you know, which is why it's so interesting that it won the Booker, because it's disrupting so many things. The kinds of characters I've created, so many women on the queer spectrum, non-binary figure. And then it's a fusion fiction, as I call it. You know, it's mm. experimental in form. And this is the difference between 19, you know, say 1980 and 2020, that a book such as this can have this kind of impact and, and level of success. Yes, it does prove something that for many years, people such as yourself must have had to hear that, you know, people don't want to hear those stories. Absolutely. People are not interested in those stories. Yes. Write something a bit more mainstream. Yes, I was told that. Not by my publisher, no. but by others. Yes. You know, and even when I started writing Girl, Woman, Other in 2013, the Me Too movement hadn't happened and Black Lives Matter hadn't happened. And those were two major shifts in our culture. And so I, I didn't think I was writing into a moment. The feminist moment happened as I was writing it. But even winning the Booker Prize and being the first black woman to do so, there was an element of certain sections of the media still making you invisible. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think we all know what, yes. what you're talking about when some a newsreader decided to call you the other I know. author. I know. And that's extraordinary. Did, did that hurt? Or did it um, just anger you? Or were you kind I was of outraged. water off a, Okay. It wasn't, I wasn't water off a It didn't hurt me because I was and still am riding so high oh, on having sure. won the booker. Yeah. So it's like you can't you can't yeah, hurt yeah. me really yeah, at the yeah, moment. Yeah, yeah. But I was outraged because I thought I've just won this major prize yeah. and this very experienced broadcaster has completely erased me from it in that moment. And um, and people said to me um oh well, you know, he just forgot. And I said, well, yes, he shouldn't have forgotten. And maybe my name hadn't even registered with him, right? So what I really uh, appreciated about, I tweeted it, was that the number of people who were outraged on my behalf. Yeah, they were. And that's the power of social media, right? You can protest and it can. there's a ripple effect and it just goes out there into the world. So he had to apologise and, and the BBC apologised. But I guess it's a reminder of how much, even with the progress that's made, how much is still to be. Yes, and where people's blind spots are. Mm. That was Bernadine Evaristo, whom I interviewed in March 2020. Photographs are a common theme within Penguin podcast interviews and are often the source of much inspiration when it comes to characterization and creating the worlds the characters inhabit. So sticking with photographs and the theme of fame and recognition, let's turn to Anne Enright, Booker Prize winner in 2007 and Penguin podcast interviewee in November of last year when I spoke to her about her novel, Actress. My first object is yeah. a photograph of Carrie Fisher looking at her mother, Debbie Reynolds, on stage. And she's sitting on a little stool and she's in a, has a bowl haircut and a matinee coat and a very nice pair of Mary Jane uh, shoes. And she's looking out at her mother who has her arms uplifted to the crowd. And her mother's in a kind of ballerina, sort of long tutu style dress. Um, and Carrie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds were, you know, a great interest of mine. I read Carrie Fisher's biographical novel, Postcards from the Edge, many, many moons ago. I couldn't figure out what her problem was. Then then I, I read Wishful Drinking, which was the memoir on which the, the real, you know, a real account 
of what it was like to have Hollywood stars and mother and, and it made a lot more sense. I mean, apart from that, that Hollywood was incestuous and families were fragmented beyond belief. She writes about her mother that, that Debbie Reynolds had a, a wardrobe and with an exit and an entrance and she would walk in one end, her mother, and come out, Debbie Reynolds. And Carrie Fisher, as you probably know, had addiction issues mm. after she played Princess Leia and then she became bipolar. She was a star in her own story, not in anyone else's. And I think that was a kind of small triumph. The editor, my editor, Robin and Jonathan Cape, took the picture as the starting point for the book and, and used it on the cover. It's such an extraordinary image. I didn't intend the book to have that on its cover, so I was using it as a resource. And I finally, after many paragraphs on, on doing these paragraphs, I have Nora saying, it made me feel so lucky and so alone. So lucky to have her and alone for losing her at the same time. And that was another key, key moment. There just does seem a huge chasm between the daughter and the mother as I look at this picture. Yeah, and the mother is on. And then there's the whole crowd. Yeah, it does seem a very uncrossable distance. And actually that line between the darkness of the wings and the light of the stage is one of the great uncrossable lines. It's not drawn on the stage. But if you've ever been in a live situation... That thing about the fourth wall, why did the audience just sit there? They didn't always, in the 18th century, they'd be throwing oranges and catcalling and doing all kinds of things and gossiping. And I don't know if you've ever had that impulse in the middle of a play to stand up. Why does nobody do that? Well, I'm still grappling with the idea that when you go to classical concerts, they don't clap until right at the end. So there's like a big pause yeah. after they've done a particular piece. Yeah. And I'm looking around and going... That was what? brilliant. Why aren't you <laughs> yeah, celebrating? Exactly. Yeah, my whole body wants to stand <laughs> yeah, exactly, up and say, yeah. whoa, yeah. yes, go. Yeah. yeah, no, no. Yeah, not growing up in that culture, I was like, well, why are you people... Not clapping. Yeah, it's just so rude. Yeah, but then you have to you have to subdue the pleasure. Yes. For a moment's mm. contemplation. These formalisms are very interesting, these manners, you know, around performance and around display. Um, and what you can and can't do in a very ritualised public space in which beautiful things can happen and moving things can happen. But there's this um, beautiful passage in the book where Catherine comes back off stage and those those glittery diamonds are actually pieces of plastic sewn into the dress. Yeah, they're on that kind of spooky kind of stocking material in yeah. denier. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I have a particular dislike for vanity fabric or something, those dresses that have a skin-coloured yeah. thing. It always freaks me out slightly. <laughs> I just don't like to see it. So, yeah, she says she comes out and it's like a second skin. It goes a little bit with the interest in masks in, in the book and in costumes. The more distinctive thing, I mean, apart from the fact that the, the spangles are just like an old pair of tights <laughs> with stuff stuck on them, is that her mother doesn't see her when she comes off stage and she rushes past her and she comes back again and she's crackling with the electricity of it all, with the, with the, with the sense of applause. But she also says to her five-year-old daughter, how was that? Was that all right? So from the very beginning... Nora has to reassure her mother about in that in that after performance dip that she was wonderful, darling. 
Another photograph now as we revisit Professor David Olusoga's 2018 interview with Booker Prize royalty Salman Rushdie. Rushdie won the prize with Midnight's Children in 1981 and has since then swooped the Booker of Booker's Award in 1993 and the Best of the Booker in 2008. Both were competitions to find the best novel out of all previous winners. So, quite an achievement. In this clip, we hear about how the Taj Palace Hotel in Mumbai was the catalyst for writing his novel, The Golden House, and how he had to learn to write the novel backwards. In many ways, this was the origin point of the novel, the terrorist attacks in Bombay on the Taj Hotel and and other places. I mean, obviously, because it's my city of origin, it's a place that I still feel very involved with. And after these attacks, I started digging into it. I wanted to find out how this happened and, you know, who did what. I mean, this is a place I've stayed many times. I actually knew some of the people who were at risk of losing their lives and in one or two cases who did lose their lives and some who fortunately survived. So it felt personal to me and I wanted to know about it. And as I dived into that story, I learned exactly what had happened, how it had taken place, and how the attack had been assisted logistically by local criminal mafias. Also, the Taj in Bombay is not just a hotel. It's a sort of iconic place in the city. It has something of the place that, that you know, the Eiffel Tower might have in Paris. I mean, it's like a, it's a defining image of the city. So an attack on the Taj is, a, is an attack on the heart of the city. What happens in the novel is that Nero's wife is accidentally killed because she's having tea with friends there. And that's, of course, one of the personal tragedies that causes them to want to to leave. Well, it's the apparent cause. The thing that we don't find out until later in the novel is the depth of Nero's own involvement with that crime. You know, at the heart of the book is this person who has done a horrible thing, who has become involved somewhat against his will, but nevertheless he has become involved in this colossal act of terrorism and is trying to escape that, perhaps even escape it, not just escape from the criminals, but escape from himself. So we have a novel that's set in the United States, but it does draw heavily on Indian politics. Yeah, and the great problem for me was exactly when to reveal what. You know, 90% of the novel takes place in a kind of present moment in Manhattan, but in a way, the explanation of that is more than a decade earlier, halfway around the world. Given that they want to keep it secret and not talk about it at all, what do I do? I mean, there's no real rule for any of this. It's just all instinct. It has to feel right. But it is the one time in my life that I've written a book that in a way is a kind of mystery. And the thing about a book with a mystery at its heart is in a way you have to write it backwards. You have to know Obviously, I know the answer to the mystery, but I don't necessarily want you to know it right away. And so you have to construct the book in reverse. That was interesting because I've never really written like that before. The Booker Prize champion of champions, Salman Rushdie, discussing the joy of plotting a novel there. Next up is Howard Jacobson, who took the book a crown in 2010 with The Finkler Question, one of the few comic novels to have won the award. And in 2019, he and I pondered that age-old question, what's in a name? 
I love playing with names, and I have from the very first book I wrote. I'm always very disappointed if I read a novel and 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 he's called Tom and she's called Mary. You mentioned Dickens, and that's right. Dickens is a huge influence on me. Dickens was, it remains, the novelist I most admire. I like having fun with names, and you kind of you understand yourself through a name, really. I've understood myself. I've been in a battle with my name. When I yearned to be a writer when I was young, I always thought something's standing in my way and that's my name. I do not see a book with War and Peace by Howard Jeff. No. Crime and Punishment by Howard Jeff. No, not a chance. So I do think we have intimate relations with our names and therefore the minute you give a character a name, you're scone some of the way to thinking about who that character is. So in this case with Beryl. She changes her name. She wishes to recreate herself and have fun with herself and teasing her children and teasing her carers. She's a teasing woman, so part of her her armoury of teasing is the name. Are you doing to us what she does to everybody around her? There's this kind Talking of... too much. No. <laughs> but it's the mischief part of it yes. that, that I'm intrigued. Because yes. not every author is mischievous. No, not every author is or wants to be funny, and I've always wanted to be funny. One of my arguments with the times I live in is you don't get that kind of mischief in the discourse, which is social media. You don't get teasing. So I've discovered over the years it's got harder to tease people as a writer. They don't quite hear the tease the way they once did. They're a bit more deaf to irony. And people are finding it harder and harder to understand the idea of the dramatic voice. We're not all out there in the business of saying what we mean. And a novelist will not say what he means. That's assuming he knows what he means. This world of the imagination is light years away from the world of thumbs up or thumbs down. There ain't no emoji for, you know, what a novel, for what a novel does. I don't know. War and Peace by Howard Jacobson? I'd be interested to read it, that's for certain. Spending so much time interviewing authors for this podcast, I've often wondered what the worst question you can ask a writer is. And in 2020, Ian McEwan, Booker Prize winner for Amsterdam in 1998, was kind enough to let Katie Brand know the answer after a lengthy chat about a squirrel skull, of course. This has only come into my life very recently, in November. I was in China, I was in Beijing, and a young woman gave it to me, and she was looking at me in that sort of, so there, now you know, don't you? And I, and I said, uh, I'm afraid I didn't... She said, well, you must know, you must recognise it. And uh, I said, no. She said, well, it's a squirrel skull. <laughs> and I said, right. She said, well, you wrote about it. And I said, did I? I said, <laughs> <laughs> And I was thinking she must be confusing me with, you know, Will Self or I did, some other writer. She said, in atonement. She said, it's written on the back. So I turned it over and it's about the young heroine of atonement. And here it is a quote from, and it said, no one knew about the squirrel's skull beneath her bed, but no one wanted to know. So Bryony wants to be a writer and she's also a very secretive person and she has a secret box, and in it she puts all her secrets. Do you think they go hand in hand, secrecy and one, and uh, writing? Yes, I do, and that's why this squirrel is in this studio now. Right. I think secrecy and writing uh, um, are related quite intimately, or they certainly are for me. Walking around with a half-written novel in your head is very much like having a squirrel under the bed, a squirrel skull. and uh, You don't want to talk about it, but that secret 
element is crucial, I think, to the whole undertaking. And the reason I was such an early adopter of word processing back in 1983 was I just loved the way a computer can hold your entire novel in its memory faithfully and not tell anyone. Mm -hmm. Sitting there sort of waiting to be woken up again and brought out again. So the worst question you can ever ask a writer is, you know, what, what are you working on now? Mm, yes. And, um, <laughs> and so um, this 20-year-old, highly educated Chinese Anglophile girl who knew her English literature, it really touched me because she went right to the heart of my sense of what a novel is. Mm. And, and yet, even as she put it in my hands, I didn't know what the hell she was on about. Well, she very subtly wanted to tell you something. She something. understood about the secret, yeah. Yes. In this next clip, Marlon James, 2015's champion and the first Jamaican writer to win the award with his novel, A Brief History of Seven Killings, discusses with me how, by borrowing from other cultures, he effectively relearned the English language to give his characters their distinctive voices. Uh, my standard English is actually a pretty colonial English. Going to other languages and cultures and use those language systems, I wasn't, I wasn't going to write a novel in Swahili or a novel in, in, in Wolof. But I took a lot from the, how those language systems and those grammar systems work. For example, some of the characters in the book, like Sogolon, only speaking present tense regardless, which actually is, something, is one of the things that, um, that Jamaicans do. We just always thought it was a sign of backward English. It was a sign that it's just another thing that, you know, big old massa couldn't stomp out on the slave plantation. That um, in in a lot of these languages, the verb always stays present tense. The rest of the sentence shifts, so that it goes. It, it tells you that it's past. Like in Jamaica, nobody says he went. They say him did go, or he'll be along soon. Him soon go. Go stays present tense. It's the words around it that shift. There are a lot of African languages like that, but to recognize that and then rewrite English in that way. It took a commitment, especially then you have to write four or five characters who have four different kinds of English, none of which is English English. I mean, I researched this book for a good two years before I wrote a word so that I could write that way without necessarily losing, you know, going mad. Do you think there's an African muscle memory in that you were taking your ancestors from Africa mm -hmm. and the culture was people would attempt to destroy everything mm -hmm. that was African in you, but yet something remains. Did you find mm -hmm. that as you discovered the rhythm that it became so natural to you? Absolutely agree there's an African muscle memory, just as how Irish Americans have an Irish muscle memory. Here's another example of African muscle memory, which I wouldn't have known had I not researched it. One of the biggest sources of agitation when black and white people talk about race is when black people always use the present tense. And white people go, but I didn't do it. Why do you keep saying you? And what they don't realize is that it's a very African thing to put time on a continuum. Everything is present tense and everything is past tense. There is no past, present, future. Everything is on a timeline. It's the way in which a lot of African cultures view temporality, which is why something like death is irrelevant. So, yeah, he's gone to join the ancestors, but the ancestors aren't 200 miles away. The ancestors are in that tree over there. They show up every, every midnight. They show up. Again, that's another, I think, African Muslim memory of um, looking at time and history, moving almost associatively instead of in a linear way. 
Sticking with bringing individual voices onto the page, in this next highlight, the 1995 Booker Prize winner Pat Barker chats to Katie Brand about enraging classicists by messing with the Iliad and whether Achilles should actually have been a Geordie. I was asked whether I felt I was going to enrage classicists and I decided uh, that was the least of my (laughs) (laughs) troubles, really. And actually, I haven't enraged many classicists, Mm -hmm. I'm pleased to say. I think you've talked before about this notion of the woman being the centre of the story, the woman being Perseus in this particular instance, the, the prize of Achilles, which Agamemnon comes yes, to and the women, And the, the women, or rather the girls, because they are very, very young, are completely silent, whereas Agamemnon and Achilles, the two major Greek warriors, uh, make tremendous, eloquent speeches which go on forever, and they almost come to blows at one point. But the girls themselves say absolutely nothing. And I love this quote you have that the start of European literature is essentially based on a a quarrel between two powerful men over a woman, which I think appears in The Human Stain by Philip Roth. Yes, my response to that is, yes, that's how it begins if you're a man. If you're a woman, it begins with silence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And that's the silence that I was trying to fill in. Yeah, and have done so incredibly successfully in in The Silence of the Girls. One of the things that really came across is that the dialogue is very natural. And I read that you had said often when you write, when the people speak in your head, they're often speaking in the kind of dialect and accent that you grew up with in Yorkshire. And actually, weirdly, that came across to me when I read it before I read that quote from you. And I absolutely... Yes, it's Teesside, which is sometimes Durham and sometimes Yorkshire. It shifts around a bit. But yes, I do hear women's voices talking together very much in Teesside dialect. I I wish in a way I'd gone further. I wish I'd made Achilles a Geordie (laughs) because he does come from the north. He comes from northern Greece and he's a little bit of an outsider. Uh, The posh southerners rather contemptuous of him sometimes. So, uh, you know, or or Yorkshire perhaps. Are they (laughs) That's a right Muppet. (laughs) Slightly a different spin on Achilles to the one people are familiar with. And yet you bring this very earthy voice to this story that can sometimes seem ethereal or lost in the mists of time or, or intimidating. I remember downloading the Iliad and the Odyssey onto my Kindle and then just kind of being too terrified to open it for quite a long time. For some reason, it felt like it's not for me. Yes. Whereas these these sorts of books, the, like The Silence of the Girls, suddenly actually open it all out to me and to hopefully lots of other people, not just women, but men well, or well, anyone. Well, I, I, I felt the Iliad was not for me, both for those reasons, but also because the battle scenes are very prolonged and they are very bloody. And although I've written about war, I don't particularly want repetitive bloodshed because I think it puts people off enormously, most people anyway. And in this final clip from our Booker Prize winners special, we revisit an exclusive live episode of the podcast where Kirsty Lang sat down with the 1997 champion Arundhati Roy who brought with her a Kashmiri Ferran and a bone to pick with people who called her a writer slash activist. There was a time when literature was full of blood. I mean, Shakespeare's full of blood, isn't it? But there is, uh, there is now a sort of gentrification which I find a little disturbing, you know, which is why people ask me or, or, or introduce me as a writer 
activist because I must have an extra profession in order to be political because writers are some kind of stuffed toys who entertain people and, and you know, uh, you're expected to be a little apologetic about being political, maybe in a novel. But for me, writing a novel, you have to try to do everything. You may fail, but you have to try to do everything. You have to write about blood, about war, about sex, about intimacy, about childhood, with the same feeling, you know? Now, the final third of the book begins by uh, recounting the story of a little girl in Kashmir, Miss Jabeen. She likes to be called Miss Jabeen. And she is killed with her mother by stray gunfire during a protest. And this moves us on to your next two objects, which are a ferun and a shroud. Can you describe them for us? I mean, tell us, first of all, what a ferun is. A ferun is a very, uh, very typically Kashmiri garment. Everyone wears a ferun. So that's Miss Jabeen's ferron, which is described as being as tiny as a tea cosy. It's like a red velvet dress with gold embroidery around the edges. Yeah, so that's the dress. And that's a coffin, which is a shroud, in which, of course, she was wrapped, but a, a shroud which many Kashmiris already have in their homes in anticipation of the fact that they can get killed at any moment. You know, mothers don't know when their children will come home and so on. And of course, Miss Jabeen is an innocent bystander in this war. Does she represent for you all of those who have lost their lives in that conflict? I think in this conflict, the trouble is that people don't even think that there are such things as innocent bystanders, you know? That's it for our whistle-stop tour of Penguin Podcast Booker Prize-winning guests. If you want to hear any of those interviews in full, then the links to each episode are listed in today's programme information. Before we go, please do follow the Penguin Podcast, comment, rate, and most of all, share. And watch this space to find out who our ninth Booker Prize-winning interviewee might be. I'm Nihal Arthanaika. I'll see you soon.